Hi everyone, I'm going to read the scripture this morning. It is Mark 8, 1 through 21. About that time, there was once again a large crowd with nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel sorry for the people. They have been with me three days now and have nothing to eat. If I send them home before they've eaten, they'll become exhausted on the road. Some of them have come a long distance. His disciples asked him, where could anyone get enough bread to feed these people in this place where no one lives? Jesus asked them, how many loaves of bread do you have? They answered, seven. He ordered the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and gave thanks to God. Then he broke the bread and gave it to his disciples to serve to the people. They also had a few small fish. He blessed them and said that the fish should also be served to the people. The people ate as much as they wanted. The disciples picked up the leftover pieces and filled seven large baskets. About 4,000 people were there. Then he sent the people on their way. After that, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and went into the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees went to Jesus and began to argue with him. They tested him by demanding that he perform a miraculous sign from heaven. With a deep sigh, he asked, why do these people demand a sign? I can guarantee this truth. If these people are given a sign, it will be far different than what they want. Then he left them there. He got into a boat and crossed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The disciples had forgotten to take any bread along and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Jesus warned them, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. They had been discussing with one another that they didn't have any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying and asked them, why are you discussing the fact that you don't have any bread? Don't you understand yet? Don't you catch on? Are your minds closed? Are you blind and deaf? Don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets did you fill with leftover pieces? They told him 12. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how, how many large baskets did you fill with leftover pieces? They answered him, seven. He asked them, don't you catch on yet? Thanks, Katie. Well, my name is Cameron. Um, if I haven't met you yet, it's an honor to be with you. Excited to be here. We're going to do what we always do, which is open up the scriptures and uh, learn about Jesus. So, hope you're down for that. Um, there's a parable of Jesus. It, it's, not, uh, it's not recorded in the gospel according to Mark. It's recorded in the gospel according to Luke. Uh, but I just want to read it to kind of set the table. I, this has always been one of my favorite little mini phrases, sayings, teachings of Jesus. Um, and I'm sure you've heard it before if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time. It says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So that's the audience. People who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, treated others with, with contempt. And here's the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's such a powerful little story. I almost almost don't want to just leave it there. Just say, let's call it a day. Just sit in silence in that for a few minutes. Um, Maybe that is what we should do. But I have more to say. (laughs) Um, Right or wrong. That story um, connects. I hope hope the connection becomes clear. But it it connects to today's passage into this other idea that I I think probably most of us um, can relate to. And this phrase just came to me the other day. Maybe it's been this phrase has been coined before, I don't know, but it's, it's like condescension consumption. What I mean by that is, do you ever like watch TV shows or movies or, or maybe even read books or listen to podcasts or whatever, where kind of the point of the thing is that you might be able to condescend over against the people that you're hearing about or learning about or reading about or watching on TV. I feel like so much of, rea- of reality TV in general is kind of built upon this principle, like the spectacle of people who are sort of like ridiculous and maybe they're poor, maybe they've made bad choices, maybe they've got some sort of ridiculous thing about them, maybe they're just incredibly socially dysfunctional and we're just gonna watch them. We're gonna spend 50 hours, 100 hours, 200 hours watching these people. The point being that we can just feel a little bit better about ourselves. You know what I mean? And I don't, I don't even think necessarily that the creators of these shows or movies or whatever are necessarily trying to do that. Uh, there may be some cases where the, the, the creators of these things have pure intentions. Like, I want to create empathy for this group of people, or I just want to tell this story because I think there's something important about it. But then me, in my sick heart, I, I can take something, even that was produced for maybe a good purpose, and for me it still becomes a way to prop myself up. Say, thank God I'm not like these people. Um, the show Hoarders comes to mind. That's just, yeah, has anybody seen Hoarders? It's like, the, is that on TLC? I think like I've seen one episode of that ever. And I don't know, I haven't seen enough of it to know if it feels like an exploitative thing or what, but I know the one episode I watched, I was like in college watching it with, I've probably seen more than one episode, but I remember in college watching it with some people and we were all just kind of like laughing and whenever I think back on that, I'm horrified. Or this, one's, this one gets muddier. Tiger King, right? Who, who, who's like first months of the pandemic were consumed with, with Tiger King? There's a couple. If you don't know what Tiger King is, you, you dodged the bullet, the moment's passed, I think. I, there was a second season, but I don't know anyone that actually watched it. Uh, I'm not even gonna comment on Tiger King. It was wild, it was wild. Kind of interesting, but then I just, for similar reasons, just felt sad at the end of it. Like, what did that do to me? condescending to these people. Um, I want to phrase that clear. What did that do to me, being a jerk in the way I was thinking about those people? I hope that's clear the way I mean, I mean that. There was a film that did this to me. Uh, and again, I don't know, maybe some of you had other, other experiences with this movie. It came out in 2017. It's called I, Tanya. Anybody see that? It's the movie about Tanya Harding. So if you, I'm sure most of you are familiar with Tanya Harding. She was an Olympic figure skater. Uh, she was born in Portland, actually. As far as I know, she still lives in the Portland area. I think that's right. Um, but, but there was all this controversy and really this wild, sordid story. It makes for a fascinating retelling, of course. It's highly entertaining. 
That was just a movie that I felt like I was in it, I was watching it, and every chance I felt like there was an opportunity to sort of like really to try to get you to, to understand her and understand her circumstance, it just went for a laugh or something. And I really enjoyed it. I was laughing and hooting and hollering, and then I remember just for weeks after being like, what was I doing in that movie? Maybe you watched it with better, better motives than I did, but even I think of the recent uh, kind of smash Christian podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Anybody listen to that? I, I was binging that thing hard when it came out. I was, I was like, the moment it dropped into my podcast, if I didn't have anything else going, I listened to that. And I actually think they did a wonderful job of calling attention to this very reality. Like, there were so many points during that show, which is about uh, Mars Hill Church from Seattle that kind of exploded and kind of the, the dramatic downfall that, that, uh, that overtook that thing. The, and the, the creators of that podcast were so, I feel like they were so set on it not becoming this kind of thing that every episode almost felt like. So, so before you start putting distance between yourself and what happened at Mars Hill, look at yourself. Look at yourself. And I think that's necessary. There's a danger with all of these things that they just become opportunities for us to prop ourselves up, uh, to minimize our own sin, minimize our own issues. At their best, though, these kinds of stories, they're actually opportunity, of course, to grow in our understanding of people, people whose experiences are not like ours, uh, to, to uh, build empathy for someone maybe not like us, and to serve as warnings for ourselves, because at the end of the day, there's no one that's too dissimilar <laughs> from you that you can't learn something or relate to them in some way, of course. Each of these things at their best, or maybe when we're at our best encountering them, they're reminders that each of us are only a few small circumstances and choices away from the same kinds of things. And maybe some of us have seasons of our life that exemplify that to a T. So anytime we enter a mode, here's my point, that we assume that we are fundamentally better or smarter or more decent or more compassionate or less prone to indulging in sin or less prone to giving in to evil or injustice, for our own benefit, we sit in a really dangerous seat. That is a point that Jesus makes again and again and again, and I think here in the Gospel of Mark, Mark is wanting to make that point again and again and again. Jesus and Mark, our Gospel author, they are going hard against this idea. Actually, so much of the Gospel according to Mark is geared towards unsettling people like me when I read it. And I mean that, me. I'm not, I'm not even trying to put that on you. I mean unsettling people like me, people who maybe have been following Jesus for a long time, um, people who have become perhaps a little bit self-confident, a little bit presumptuous, a little bit ungracious, a little bit arrogant. Mark, in part, was written <laughs> to destabilize people like me and to make us take another look at ourselves. And so today... Uh, Katie read it for us. It's actually three short stories that, that I, I'm going to argue, I, I, I think they really work together as a unit to unsettle any of us uh, that, that maybe find ourselves in a place like this. So we'll quickly jump in. We'll have to move through each little section quickly, uh, but we'll do it. But first, let's just pray. Pray that Jesus would meet us here today in and through this ancient text as we listen to him together, Okay. Father, we want to see you. 
And it is always a danger with any routine. And they're, they're, they're coming to church every week is a good routine, Lord. But nonetheless, routines create the possibility of habit and, and roteness and um, sterilization, Lord. Um, we pray that today as we read about Jesus, your son, the second person of the Trinity, God in human flesh, Lord, that it wouldn't be words on a page from an old book, but that we would encounter the living Jesus who's alive and reigning right now. And that we would do it with the confidence that, that your Holy Spirit is actually here indwelling every one of us that calls Jesus King and Savior, enabling us to understand and to see and to hear and to know you. Keep us from simple routine, Lord, but may we freshly get a glimpse at you, our Savior. Help us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verses 1 through 9, verses 1 through 9. We, we, it's already been read for us. We have another miraculous feeding story. And it's actually remarkably similar to the one in chapter 6. And, so, and that's why we're not going to spend a ton of time belaboring it because the details are, lots of the details are very much the same. It's a great crowd coming together around Jesus, hearing him teach. And uh, Jesus, Jesus this time declares the situation. He says, I've got compassion on this crowd. I care about their needs. I am moved deeply by the needs of this crowd because they've been with me three days and have nothing to eat. So just pause for that. This is a, group, a huge crowd who's come out to see Jesus teach, and they've just been listening to him for three days, and there's no food. When people would come, I'm sure people were planning to stay for a while if they're going to make a journey to come hear Jesus, brought some food with them, but it's like, whoa, this thing has just kind of spiraled. It's continued on. Three days of teaching, this little seminar here. How magnetic must the teaching of Jesus been? But he says, they've got nothing to eat. Verse 3, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they're going to faint on the way. Some of them have come from very far away. And the disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And pause. Jesus just fed, said 5,000 men, two chapters of Mark ago, probably a matter of months before this. And maybe he's done it some other times in between. We don't know. We don't presume that Mark, I mean, we're told none of the gospel writers could have possibly recorded all the miracles that Jesus performed. Nonetheless, at least a few months prior, uh uh-oh, at least a few months prior, there was um, this exact same situation. A huge crowd of people, nobody, nobody has food, and Jesus miraculously fed them to the degree that there were 12 baskets of food left over. So if you're like me, you read this and you instantly start doing this thing like, these disciples are idiots. These guys are morons. What is wrong with these people? What is wrong with these people? And Jesus doesn't make a big deal out of it. He just asks, he just uh, They ask, how can we feed these people? He says, well, how many loaves do you have? They say, seven. He says, okay. He tells the crowd to sit down once again. Um, He took the loaves. He gave thanks. He gave thanks to God, and he broke them, and he gave them to the disciples to give to the people, set before the people. They set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. Having blessed them, he said that also these should be set before them. Everybody ate. Everybody was satisfied, and and then they took up the broken pieces left over, Seven baskets full. So that was a miracle. 
there were about 4,000 people, and Jesus sent them away. This is another story that highlights crucial things Mark has repeatedly begun telling us. And I don't know if you recognize this. We're about two stories away in Mark from the fulcrum point of the book. We're about almost halfway through where this dramatic conversation between Jesus and the disciples happens. Uh, He declares that he's actually the son of God um, very explicitly. And then they start their move towards Jerusalem. And and the book is going to, if it's begun to feel like, man, we're getting a lot of the same things. It's about to shift for us. It's about to shift for us. But nonetheless, this point, this story highlights lots of things that we've already seen. First, Jesus' teaching ministry. We've highlighted that a few times. His purpose was to teach. Specifically, his key message was that the kingdom of God had come in him. He was bringing the kingdom and then all the implications for life. If Jesus is the king, he's bringing his kingdom. And as part of that includes this invitation to salvation, to become part of this family that he's creating, and then a new way of living, a new way of being human as part of this family. All of that is, we can assume, here in this teaching. And he sometimes taught through parables. He sometimes gave direct kind of ethical teachings or whatever. But that's what's going on here. So we see Jesus taught. In fact, here, three days unbroken of teaching. It's a lot of content. But number two, we see the compassion of Jesus for people in their hunger. They've been listening to him for three days. They were going to get hungry. They were hungry, and they were not going to be strong enough to make their way home. So Jesus cares about their physical needs. We say that again and again. He cares about their physical needs. Whatever, you know, whatever Jesus' understanding of, of, of spirituality and, and the way to peace and relationship and salvation with God looks like, it's not disconnected from concern for the physical needs of the people around him. But crucially, crucially, there's a third point. It's not just that he's compassionate, it's that he's powerful enough to do something about it. Because you could imagine a Jesus, we, we know lots of people that care about everything and everyone, and that is good. But no one actually has the capacity, no mere man or mere woman has the capacity to meet all the myriad needs around them. Your heart can break and you can be impotent to do anything. But it's not true with Jesus. Jesus is not only compassionate, but he is miraculously, supernaturally powerful enough to do something about it. We're reminded here, even if subtly, that he is the Lord of all creation, that all creation was made through him. He holds everything in the palm of his hands. There is no need that exists beyond his capacity, be it materially, be it supernaturally, you name it. If there's a need, he can meet it. That's what this text is telling us what this text is telling us. Okay. Again, it's a very similar story to one we saw in chapter 6, but there's a few key differences that I just want to highlight. And and the the key details that are different here are first is that they're still in Gentile territory. Um, So remember, Jesus had this confrontation with the Pharisees in chapter 7, where basically he... um, they got in this argument over what is it that actually makes someone unclean? And it, it was this very heated, heightened confrontation. And then after that, Jesus started this little excursion through Gentile territory. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm, it's almost as if he's like, I'm done with Israel for a minute. Not, not finally, of course, but he's like, I need a little break. He's coming through Gentile territory. And all the, the last few stories we've read have been about Jesus interacting with non-Jews. Um, and so this story... Uh, is the last story in this little excursion into Gentile territory. Oh, there we go. 
So here we go. We don't know how many times Jesus fed these massive crowds, of course, possibly a bunch of times. John 21, 25 says there are now also many other things that Jesus did where even where every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Um, but Mark is including this second time he fed a huge crowd for the specific purpose in this Gentile region to show us specifically he didn't only do this for the people of Israel. When Jesus performed this miracle amongst the Jews, this is really interesting, there were 12 baskets left over. You remember that? 12 baskets. And we don't want to be too hyper, like, Bible Cody <laughs> with this stuff. Anybody remember, like, Bible codes in the 90s? I got way into that as a seventh grader. It was wild. Um, <laughs> I, could, I could, uh, could go down a rabbit hole. Um, it's not good. But... Uh, 12 baskets, and I, I think there was significance to that of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and Jesus, even in choosing the 12 disciples, he's re, it's this image of him reconstituting the 12 tribes. Jesus is the rightful king. He's reassembling Israel. He's, he's, he's folding it back into this new thing that he's doing. And that was when he did this in, in Israel. But now it's seven baskets. And it, it's, you might think, well, that's just kind of a random, silly detail. Why do we need to know how many baskets there were in either case? But Seven is the biblical Hebrew number for completion. Seventh day of, of creation. Complete. Finished. The work is done. And a lot of scholars would say this is this subtle little point that it's no coincidence that as Jesus is now taking the same miracle, showing him to be the compassionate provider, not only in Israel, but to the ends of the earth, amongst the non-Jewish people that he's always wanted to pull back to himself, that the number of leftover baskets is this number of completion. The message going out. It's loaded. It's important. It's beautiful. So taking it, taken together, we see that Jesus is also the compassionate provider for the Gentiles too. This second feeding story should cement for us that, of course, Jesus' ministry was first to Israel, but it would never exclude the Gentiles. It would be for all people to the ends of the earth. Jesus was continuing the plan that had started from the very beginning of the Bible to save, to save an ethnically, culturally, geographically diverse people and family for himself. This is another picture of the universal salvation or invitation to be part of the people of God through Jesus. Jesus says, my family is not going to be complete unless it contains folks from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every skin color, every cultural background, you name it. That's the significance of this miracle. What Jesus was first offering to Israel, he was no less offering to all the nations of the world. And that's good news, Americans, okay? That's good news, Americans, in 2021, that he didn't just leave it as this narrow group. He extends that invitation to you and to me. Man, I am losing this thing. It is really good news. So that is the point of another feeding story, here specifically. So we'll move on from that. Story one. Story two. Immediately, Jesus got into the boat with his disciples, and he went to the district of Dalmanutha. This is back in Israel's territory. So they're back on the Sea of Galilee. They left kind of the, the Gentile touching region and they're back to Jewish territory. And the Pharisees came. So remember, he had, last time he was in Israel, it was this big confrontation with the Pharisees. And he's back in Israel. And the, it's a, as Mark is painting it, the first thing that he touches back in Israel's territory and the Pharisees are right back there on his case. They're right back there with him. 
And they, they come <laughs> and they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And I just want you to, to feel the exhaustion of Jesus here for a second. Like, again, he, he, ending this excursion in Gentile territory that started in chapter 7 after his last confrontation over exactly what makes a person unclean before God, going and doing this amongst the unclean people and coming back. And the second he's back, they're back on his case again. It reminds me, I mean, we've all had this experience, I'm sure, in, in various ways. The one that came to mind for me was this idea that, you know, there are so many days when I, you know, you might have a stressful day. I've had stressful days, maybe, you know, stuff at the church or whatever. I'm anxious. I'm upset. I'm wrung out. I'm tired. Uh, I'm maybe discouraged, whatever. But I'm, I'm driving home or riding my bike home or whatever, and I'm, I'm near, you know, gearing up to see my family. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I get to see my wife. I get to see my kids. All right. This is like going to be a beautiful little reset. And from the second I walk in the door, it's always on those days. You're met with nothing but screaming and then a headbutt to the crotch. Without fail. Without fail. And not even the headbutt to the crotch that's like a headbutt and like, oh, daddy, I'm, oh, is daddy okay? That's always really sweet. A little kid coming, like, oh, are you okay? Can I make it better? Instantly, it's like the pain goes away. You're like, oh, that's so sweet. This is the headbutt that's like an intentional headbutt. You go down on all fours and then they start laughing and high fiving. That <laughs> happens way more often than I would care to admit. I have sighed deeply <laughs> in those moments. That's, I think that's what that is. Jesus, like this confrontation, he leaves, he goes, he's expanding the kingdom to include all these people who maybe we couldn't even have thought about otherwise. He comes back and then immediately headbutt to the crotch from the Pharisees, from the most religious folks in Israel. And they're not... We don't want to caricature the Pharisees, all right? The Pharisees are not like mustache-twirling villains. They're people who seriously desire the repentance of Israel that they might expedite the coming of the Messiah. So there are things that we should not, <laughs> we should not be standing arrogantly in, in judgment over the Pharisees either, thinking of them as idiots or whatever. Um, nonetheless, the most <laughs> one of the most religious groups the group striving after holiness more than the other comes back, and as soon as Jesus touches down, hey, let's, hey, Jesus, we have a question for you. Can you do a sign? To test him. Jesus is exhausted. What do they want? So are they sort of on the fence about Jesus? Is this one of these moments where it's like, man, I'm just really struggling to understand this Jesus. You know, he's doing some interesting things. He's saying some interesting things, but, you know, I don't know. I just, there's something else I need to maybe be convinced. No, that's not what this is. Mark tells us quite explicitly, they're just trying to test him. They're trying to throw these little things out that will kind of trip him up and maybe get him, get him in hot water uh, with, uh, with the temple or whatever. Um, they've already begun scheming. In fact, I think it was back in chapter 3 um, to kill him. They've, they're conspiring with their political enemies even because they have a common enemy in Jesus to kill him. So that's the backdrop to this. And what do they want? Well, what they're doing, I, I think at bottom we could say this. I think what they're doing, the Pharisees are demonstrating an impulse that stands in dismissive judgment over Jesus. That, 
the, the Pharisees are assuming the moral high ground here over against him. It, 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 they're representing the spirit that assumes that it knows the way that things really are. It assumes a spiritual knowledge that supersedes whatever Jesus. Oh, Jesus, that's cute, but we know how things really are. It's preconceived notions about who God is, preconceived notions about what the Messiah must be like. It's preconceived notions about how God does or doesn't move towards which kinds of people. Jesus' response is really intense. He says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And I love the way commentator David Garland says this. He says, the English translation of the, the second part of Jesus' response makes the, his, his sharp denial, misses his sharp denial. The, the way that ESV puts this doesn't quite capture it at this point. This comment is part of an oath formula, though it admits the threats of evil on oneself that normally accompanies such comment. It's, it's like he's saying, may God strike me down, or may I be accursed of God. Truly I say to you, da-da-da, or may I be cursed of God. That's, the, that's like the little trope he's playing into here. This oath fragment does more than say no sign will be given. It conveys with some vehemence that he will prevent it from happening at all cost. Jesus is ticked here. He's ticked here. But we do well to raise the question, isn't he, hasn't Jesus already performed a bunch of signs? Like, didn't we just read about one last week when he gave the man with hearing and, t and speech issues, when he healed the man? When he healed the Syrophoenician woman's daughter? When he's raised people from the dead? When he's just, just before this, fed 4,000 people? Yeah. And I think that's the point. Whatever they're asking for, in this case, they're not sincere. And at the same time, they're missing the countless signs that Jesus has been performing. Like we just said, Jesus has been, throughout Mark, delivering the demon oppressed. He's been healing the sick. He's been cleansing the lepers. He's been calming the waters for the endangered. He's been restoring the outcast, the community. He's been making the paralyzed walk, the deaf ear, bringing the dead back to life. And just before this, giving the hungry food. Maybe what they want is some kind of arbitrary and spectacular power display. You know, think about like uh, the conflict between uh, Elijah and, and Baal in the Old Testament. Bring the fire down from heaven and burn up the altar. And that, not that that was wrong. That was, that was dramatic and powerful and beautiful. But maybe that's what they want. Just do something cool, Jesus, if you're so powerful. Just do, some, do something amazing. Do something crazy. But so far... And this is typical of Jesus. His miraculous power has only been displayed through acts of compassionate love for people. You see that? Every single miracle in Mark so far. It's not just, let me do something crazy and amazing. He's going to do that. We're about to read about the transfiguration, which is kind of that kind of thing, just for three disciples. But he's not, he's not into this like, big spectacle thing. He's like, my miracles are going to meet the needs of the people that are around me. And you know what that's doing? That's revealing the compassionate heart of God, the deepest heart of God towards his people. That's what the miracles are for. So for the Pharisees, in this case, the religious expertise the preconceived notions, their assumptions about what God must really be like kept them from seeing God 
himself, the second person of the Trinity, standing before them in the flesh, speaking to them. They just couldn't see him. What about you? Don't read this story and say, what a bunch of idiots. What a bunch of religious hypocrites. What a bunch of... Don't condescend to these people. What about you? Do you have preconceived notions? Do you have things that you assume must be the case just based on what you read in the newspaper, what's in your social media feed, what's in the the media that you, you ingest? Have you been formed to assume that Jesus can't be the way he's presented himself to us in the scriptures? Do you find yourself demanding signs that might fit the character of the kind of God you want him to be rather than the kind of God he actually is? It's a good question to chew on. Well, let's keep going. One more story. So Jesus left them. He gives this dramatic, another dramatic moment, like no sign's going to be given to this generation. He doesn't mean all people living on the planet at this time. I think he means like you guys, as, as kind of representing the religious institution here, I'm not going to come give you what you want. He's going to perform more miracles in Mark, but it's not going to be to prove anything to them. It's not going to be to prove anything to them. So he leaves, and he got into the boat again, like, all right, boys, let's head out. Back in the boat. And they went to another part of the Sea of Galilee. And they'd forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. This, this kind of, I, I can't decide whether this really breaks my heart or whether I think it's one of the funniest stories in the Bible. You, you decide. I think both. I think both. They forgot to bring bread. They had one loaf. And Jesus cautioned them. So, so, He's just had this dramatic encounter again with like basically the religious establishment of Israel. And once again, they've rejected him and they're rejecting everything about him and, and they have nothing in their hearts but the desire to kill him and his influence. So they leave in the boat and they're in this boat and you can imagine, remember, this is already Jesus coming back, he gets the head to the crotch. Okay, he leaves on the boat. Okay, guys, let's debrief this. Let's debrief this. You're my 12 disciples. I, need, I have an important lesson for you about this. And he says, watch out. Like, don't miss this. Be attentive. Beware of the leaven, the leaven. It's just yeast. Beware the yeast. There's another little, little uh, metaphor of Jesus. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. You know these religious leaders? Don't become like them. Don't let their influence, don't let their example, don't let their teachings corrupt you. Oh, and you know that puppet king, Herod? Don't let him do it either. (laughs) Verse 16. And they start discussing with one another the fact that they have no bread. They're like, oh yeah, yeast. (laughs) You see that? It's like, oh yeah, the yeast. Oh yeah, yeast. Speaking of yeast, we don't have any bread. <laughs> like, this is really, I love this. Another head to the crotch of Jesus. <laughs> I hadn't planned on using that as a uh, uh, 
pervasive callback this sermon. Guys, come in close. Do not let the yeast of these teachers work its way into you. Do not come under their influence. Don't we have any bread? Did we, did we bring any bread? You guys have any? I've just got one loaf. Have you ever borne your soul to someone only to be met with a shrug <laughs> or, or like a distracted change of subject? I imagine we've all been there. Something, you, maybe it's someone you've been in conflict with and you're like, hey, I need to say, like, listen, I need to tell you something. Things aren't right between us. There's, or there's something you need to know. Only to be in the middle of the, yeah, that's cool. Where, what are we doing for dinner? Or whatever the change of subject is. That it's such a crushing experience, probably one we all experience on the regular. Maybe people don't realize that you're trying to bridge that gap, you're trying to come close, but nonetheless, it doesn't hurt any less just because they're ignorant of what you're trying to do. You've become vulnerable and they've just totally dropped you there. It's excruciating. Jesus knows what that's like. And Jesus lets them have it pretty good. Look at his reaction. Jesus, aware of this. So it's, it, it sounds as if they're not even talking directly to Jesus, but you know, you're on this little boat. It's like a 20-foot boat. So maybe Jesus is trying to get their attention, and then maybe a couple of the guys in the back are like, yeah, do, what about the bread? Do we bring any bread? Jesus becomes aware of this perhaps secret conversation they're trying to have, and he just lets them have his, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? This is all going back to, remember those, those uh, parables he taught earlier about the soil and about the way the kingdom, the word of the kingdom goes out and the way that, look, this is constantly being sown, but you have to be a receptive soil. You have to be a receptive hearer. You have to have the kind of heart that will lean in and try to take in what Jesus is throwing out. He recalls all that language. Is this not you? Then he recalls the history that we've, we've already talked about. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full did you take up? Imagine that, oh, we're in trouble. Their heads are kind of low. Twelve? And how about with seven for the 4,000? Remember, we fed 4,000 people, seven, seven loaves of bread. How many baskets full did you take up after that? Seven. And the story ends here. He said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? And like the Pharisees, we might be tempted to dismiss these disciples as idiots. Days before, perhaps, they've seen... A crowd of 4,000 get fed. Seven baskets left over. What a bunch of idiots. What's really going on here is fear. They're probably hungry. They're probably hungry. The belief that somehow the needs of the day are going to outweigh what Jesus is able or willing to provide. Even after all they've seen, when fear sets in, whatever the context, we are quick to assume Jesus isn't compassionate enough to care or he isn't powerful enough to do something about it. How about you? 
Those of you that self-consciously, you've made a decision. I'm a follower of Jesus. I identify with him. I've placed my trust in him. I know that I've been adopted into his family. I know I've been justified by his blood. I know I have an eternal seat at his table. What happens when fear creeps in? What happens when it looks like there's not enough to actually supply what you need? Do you remember? Or is your first impulse to remember those acts when God has supplied what you needed, maybe in your actual life or in the life of a friend, or maybe even recalling these great stories in the scriptures where God did the impossible? Or, like the disciples, like me, are you more quick to panic? To assume that, well, now this is on me. This is all on me. I'm not going to get any help from anywhere else. Jesus certainly doesn't care. And even if he did care, I doubt he's interested in doing anything about it. Maybe he can't do anything. Maybe his hands are tied for some reason. We read these stories and we think, what a bunch of idiots. But I think we have these exact same impulses and there is nothing more dangerous than following Jesus for a long, long time and then beginning to assume that we're not like those people. You know what? Thank God I'm not like those people. That's what this story's meant to do. Raise that question. But in a great twist in this whole section of Mark, this section about this, this excursion into Gentile lands, here's where we conclude. Here's where we conclude. It's neither the Pharisees, the religious leaders who, 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 are, who, are, who know so much about the, the Torah, they, they've studied it, they're trying to live faithfully to it, they're trying to implement even stricter practices to make sure that the nation can really try to live up to it. Not them. It's not them who sees Jesus for who he is. Oh, but surely it's going to be the 12 disciples, these 12 hand-picked men that Jesus chose to travel with him, to train, to leave them eventually as the leaders of the burgeoning early church in his stead. Surely they get it. It's not them either. Not in this story. But we did see two people. Chapter 7, verses 24 through 30, Josh taught on it, the Syrophoenician woman, this Canaanite woman, this woman who had no business, you would think, approaching the God of the universe in, in the flesh and asking for anything, but she, in her humble dependence on his mercy, she just comes and says, I, I believe you can heal my daughter. She has nothing to offer him. She has no standing that she tries to, tries to stand in. She just comes in humble dependence on his mercy. Or this deaf and speech-impaired man we read about last week, who was also a Gentile. His friends bring him to the feet of Jesus. He doesn't really do or say anything, that we, that at least that's recorded. He doesn't, it doesn't record any effort he makes to try to wrangle something from Jesus. He simply receives the grace that's in his presence. Jesus coming close compassionately supplying all that he needs. So the lesson here, the lesson of those two people, this woman and this man, is not try harder, try hard to be like them necessarily. It's just to simply trust with open hands that his grace is sufficient to overcome both our narrow preconceptions and our fearful forgetfulness of him. And anything else, the lesson of this teaching here is not, okay, then let's, here's our five-point plan. We're going to go and we're going to do this. It's simply to just look afresh at Jesus and trust that, like, he's good. He actually cares about you. 
He actually cares about you, and he's died in your place as the proof. And there's nothing you could ever do to add an inch to your worthiness of that. He just offers it freely because that's who he is. He loved you first. He wanted you before you had any awareness of him. When you were dead in your sin, he saved you. 